Choices. They're, parts of our, they're a part of our lives. Every day, we make choices. When you get up in the morning, you've got to choose. What am I going to wear today? You make a choice. What activities am I, am I going to engage in this day? You make choices as to what thoughts you're going to entertain and which ones you're not. Even the very act of not doing anything. I'm just going to sit here. I'm not going to do nothing. That's a choice you make. You can't escape making choices. Now, what we're, I'm not worried about little choices. Okay, do you like Snickers or do you like Milky Way? That's not what we're here to talk about. Okay? I don't care whether you like football or not and which team is your favorite if you like it. That's immaterial. What we want to think about today, though, is the truly important choices of our life. What is my purpose in life? What are the priorities I should have in life? What sources should guide me in my thinking and in my actions? That's what we want to look at. The choices that we make based on those things are what's important. I mean, they come down to very practical matters. How should I relate to those around me? Who should I marry? How should I act at my job? What should I do with my life? In every area, we have choices to make. What's the basis for the decisions that you make this day? That's what we want to investigate. We want to look at. I want to try to be simple. I hope that you read, that you got the um, preparation from last night and were able to look at a couple of those passages. We had a couple of passages read today that were different from those. I don't want to spend a lot of time on any one of them. There will be an outline available afterwards. Uh, on the website with all the references and everything here. And if you have any questions, just give me a call, send me an email. I'll be more than happy to answer them. But I want us to go through and think today on a couple of things. One, what's the basis on what most men make their choices and what does God have to say about that? Two, one of the great purposes of Scripture. You know, if God wanted to give us an instruction book that said, here are the choices, Newell, you should make in your life. It wouldn't need to be more than 10 or 15 pages long, would it, for any of us? I mean, think about it. It wouldn't be very long involved. But this is a pretty big book, you know. And of this, you know, like this much is the New Testament and this much is the Old Testament. And a lot of the Old Testament is what? Stories. Histories. Real people who lived. People just like you and me. They got up every day and they had to make the same choices we have to make each day. So we want to delve into that and look at some examples, good and bad, Old and New Testament, of choices that men made. And then when I wrap up, I hope to be able to show you just three very simple things that should guide our choices. Three things that we need to make sure that we're doing when we're making our decisions. So let's jump into it. What does the world think that we ought to have to make our choices? Well, first of all, one of the most popular, I think, is appeals to tradition, human wisdom, and authority. That guy's most men's thinking, don't you think? Think about it. Great men. What have great men in the past taught? I mean, a great man could be my granddaddy, right? I mean, after all, he was my granddaddy, right? He taught me things. Could be some great national hero that we like. Could be some famous philosopher, right? In many cases, especially in the context of what we're looking at, we're going to be talking about religious authority. So it might be some godly minister or pastor or prophet, but I want us to look at it, we're talking about now man-made tradition. Not what God's word says, but what somebody else has said and taught. Does the Bible have anything to say about tradition? Look over at Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. This is one of the passages we read last night. I don't want to spend a lot of time going over in detail over it. 
It's been the subject of whole message of a whole message in the past. But let's notice how the Lord warned us about tradition. He warned us. Over in Mark chapter 7, the context is the Pharisees have come together with the scribes from Jerusalem to talk to Jesus and his disciples in verse 1. And they noticed that Jesus and his disciples, when they went to eat, they didn't wash their hands. And they weren't concerned about, you know, salmonella contamination. I'm talking about the Pharisees here. They had religious things they were concerned about. And it tells us in verse 3 that the Pharisees and all the Jews, except that they wash their hands oft, eat not. Here's a key point. Holding the tradition of the elders. Somebody in the past, some rabbi had taught that to be holy, to be pure, to be separate from sin, you've got to make sure that you wash those hands before you eat. goes on to tell us, and when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels, and of tables. And then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk thy disciples? Not. Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Their own words tell you what was the emphasis of their thoughts. This man-made tradition. And I will remind you, we're not talking here about, you know, English picks who paint themselves blue and worship mistletoe. These were people who had the true worship of God. Some of scribes and Pharisees, you're talking about the religious teachers. You're talking about the ones in the know. Pharisees, in most cases, had the Old Testament memorized. They could probably tell you verses backwards as well as forwards. That was their specialty, to know. The scribes' specialty was to know the law of God. So these are not ignorant pagans. These are men who were trained at this point in time, the only people who had the revelation of God was the nation of Israel. And these were the men who dealt with it on a regular basis. How did Jesus Christ answer this charge? He answered and said unto them, Well, hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written. This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Pretty bold. How be it in vain? Vain means empty. Do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men? For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may hold your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor father and mother, and thy mother. And whosoever curses father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, If a man shall say to his father or mother, It is Corban, that is to say, a gift. By whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And you suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother. Making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which you've delivered. And many such like things you do. Tradition, from what our Lord says here, makes you your worship empty to God. Man-made tradition empties it. Any worship that's based on it empties of it any value before God. Tradition leads you to lay aside God's commandments, verse 8. Tradition causes you to transgress God's commandments. If you went over to Matthew 15 and verse 3, which is a parallel passage to this, it says that. Why transgress ye the law of God by your commandments? Tradition leads you to reject God's commandments, verse 9. And tradition nullifies the effectiveness of God's word in your life. Verse 13, tradition. It's not a basis. Human tradition is no basis for a decision. What about worldly wisdom? After all, we live in probably the wisest nation that's ever existed, right? We've got, I mean, PhDs are a dime a dozen. 
Experts are everywhere. What did Paul have to say about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? Again, the passage from last night. What does God say about wisdom, man's wisdom? Verse 18, for the preaching of the cross is to them which perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. And God turns around and gets rather sarcastic at this point. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But, in contrast to that, we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, and under the Greeks foolishness. But under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Paul, as a minister, chose not to use man's wisdom, it tells us in verse 17. He tells us that God promises to destroy it and bring it to nothing in verse 19. God mocks the wise of this world in verse 20. And why? Because men want their so-called wisdom. So God says, preach Christ crucified to them. And they turn around and think that's foolishness. Verses 21 through 23. And the whole point of the matter is God does not generally call wise, mighty, or noble things in this world's estimation to be his own. God wants all the glory himself. I've said it before, and this just proves it. God is the greatest egotist this world knows. But doesn't he deserve it? I mean, you tell me what you've made. Come on, show me something you've put together. You're using other materials that that you're reassembling. You want to see something that's, that's great? Go out there and speak and let something that didn't exist come into existence. Let this whole universe come into existence. That's what our God's done. He deserves all the praise and all the glory. Man deserves nothing. Everything we have is a retread. We're reusing things all the time. And as we'll see, any wisdom that there is in this world comes from God. Man didn't create it. Man didn't discover it unless God gave it to him. And for men to get up, And to flaunt their intellects. God just loves that. He loves to make them look like idiots. And you know what he likes, how he likes to do it? He likes to take nothings like us and promote us. That's what God does. Because then everybody can look and say, hey, boy, that's something great. Had nothing to do with the person involved. Has everything to do with God. So man's wisdom, put that in the same category as tradition, not anything to be referenced when you're talking about making your choices. The Lord also had some things to say about seminary training and education, religious hierarchies and other such things. Look at Matthew chapter 23, Matthew chapter 23, an entire chapter in which Jesus does nothing but rail down on the religious leaders of the day. Matthew 
Matthew chapter 23, start at verse 13. But woe unto you. And look who he's dealing with. Scribes, Pharisees, the most strictest set of the Jews, the Pharisees, the ones who knew the scriptures and dealt with them daily, the scribes. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering in to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye compass land and sea to make one proselyte, and when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Woe unto you, blind guides. And he goes on through an example of here, of how they're looking at carnal things in the worship of God and praising those things and forgetting the important things. What's more important? Some gold somebody should off, can offer or the temple where God's worshipped? To the Pharisee, it was that gold. Not the temple where God was worshipped. Verse 19, Ye fools and blind, for whither is greater? The gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift. Verse 23, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye paid tithes. Oh, they, they followed God's commandments. God said, pay tithes. They paid their tithes of mint and anais and cumin. They were so good that when God said, I want a tenth, they made sure that when they harvested their herb garden, they took a tenth of those herbs up there to give to the Lord. Glorious, isn't it? And have omitted the weightier matters of the law. Judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. He's saying, fine, pay your tithes of all, all of your herb garden, but understand what's crucial. Justice, mercy, faith. Do it all. Don't just pick and choose what's easy for you to do and what you like to do. You do it all, and you emphasize those things that God emphasizes. And notice what they de-emphasized, obviously, from what Christ said. Justice, mercy, and faith. Ye blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. They're so interested in these little bitty intricacies of Scripture that mean nothing to your practical life. And all the time, they're letting all sorts of wickedness go about their lives not even looking at it. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Goes on and talks about later on how that they garnished the, 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 the tombs of the prophets and showed that by their actions and confirming what their fathers before them had done, they would have killed the same prophets their fathers did. In verse 33, ye serpents and generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Those are the passages of Scripture that point out that many good-looking ministers are really the ministers of Satan. Over in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 11. Just like Satan is able to make himself look like an angel of light, so his ministers make themselves look like ministers of righteousness. And remember what Paul told Timothy to be aware of in 1 Timothy 4.1, that in the latter days some would depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. So see, brethren, religious hierarchies, religious tradition, big religious organizations, the bigger they are, the more they're suspect. The more organized they are in a man-made fashion, the more suspect they are. Unlike modern-day televangelists and polished Ministers, Paul refused to be a professional. Do you know what I mean? I mean, have you seen most, most of these guys, you know, 
I mean, they, they know exactly, you know, the right pose to strike. They know they're, they're very skilled in their use of language and in how they present themselves. Most of them, if you look at you'd wonder, did they ever think of anything like blue jeans or anything else? You know, they were probably born with a three-piece suit on. And again, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying in the worship of God, we are going to do the best we can. I mean, we want to look good in the worship of God, okay, because God deserves our best. But do you know what I'm talking about? Those that are so professional that you couldn't tell whether they came out of a boardroom or they stepped out of the pulpit. Got to have their degrees. Got to have all the proper way of doing things. What did Paul say about that? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, this is the inspired apostle Paul, the apostle to us Gentiles. How did he act? How did he minister? When I came to you, came not with the excellency of speech or wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified, just like he said in the previous chapter. And I was with you in weaknesses and fear and in much trembling. Wow. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Throughout the Gospels, every time our Lord Jesus Christ spoke to a multitude, many times, what does it say about him afterwards? Did the people go away, you know, oh, yeah, we've heard that again, heard that before. Or did they go away shocked? Really stunned by what they heard? I mean, what's it say? You know, that they marveled because he spoke with authority and not like the scribes and the Pharisees. See, the scribes and the Pharisees were so concerned about professionalism. They didn't want to make sure they wanted to make sure they never, ever said anything wrong. They always paid due deference to every contrary opinion. Because who knows? Maybe tomorrow they'd find out that the particular particular tradition they'd studied under wasn't the best one. It wasn't the one in power. So they always wanted to be sure, you know, that they were in good stead with everyone there. They didn't thunder down and say, Thus saith the Lord. They didn't say, There's sin in the camp. They spoke smooth things that people wanted to hear. And Paul said, no, I'm not going to do that. And it wasn't because Paul was incapable. Over in Acts chapter 2, we find out that Paul was very well trained. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel. You see, Gamaliel listed another place in the book of Acts, someone of great authority among the Jews because He made advice to them about, well, what should we do about this new sect, these Nazarenes that have come up, you know. And he was the one who said, hey, if it's of God, we can't do anything against it. You know, no no need to put ourselves out to try to shut it down because many things have happened in the past. If it's not of God, it'll peter out and it'll go the way of everything else. And if it's of God, we don't want to fight against it. And they listened to him. That's who Paul trained under. You want to go and look... It's a pointless exercise, but I've heard it said that Gamaliel is still to this day listed as one of the top three rabbis in all history of the Jews. That's who Paul studied under. Paul was what? A Pharisee, and what does he claim? A Pharisee of the Pharisees. Paul was a young man, and what was he doing going to Damascus? He had authority from the high priest to capture and take anyone who was a Jew who now claimed to be a Christian and bring them back for punishment in the city of Jerusalem. He says, I exceeded many mine equals in the nation of Israel. Paul could debate on Mars Hill Greek philosophers. Think about that. Paul could debate Greek philosophers one-on-one, taking them on, if you go there and look at it, I hear that there's a, he even quotes from one of their minor poets in what he says, in his defense of the truth. And it's very interesting. How does he debate with them? He preaches Jesus Christ crucified. And that there's a day of judgment coming when everyone's going to have to answer. That's how he dealt with philosophy. He didn't worry about all these little silly nuances. He went to the heart of the matter. 
There's a day of judgment coming. And that man who was raised from the dead, Jesus of Nazareth, whom I preach, he's the one who's coming back to judge us all. So see, Paul could have done it, but he made a choice. God, he, he learned well from the Lord. He never used man's wisdom in his preaching. But what did he say? What did he teach over in Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 2? Every young man, what did Paul teach? Come on, somebody tell me. Preach the word. That's what he did. The world's going to see it's foolish. Fine. The world's going to hell. What do I care what the world thinks? But what does it say in that same passage? Those who are saved, when they hear that word preached, oh, it strikes a chord. They start trembling in fear. It means something to them. And those are the only ones we care about. Those are the ones we can help. God's children, those people that God's already called out from this world, we can show them the gospel. And that's what Paul did. He preached the word. Appeals to tradition, human wisdom, authority. Whatever level you want, throw them in the trash bin. Next, popularity, numbers. Doesn't that guide most men today? I mean, tell me, what's talk radio all about? Let's set up a proposition. Let's get a couple of people here to show the different extremes on it. And then let's open the phone lines and let's hear the true wisdom of all you people in the listening audience. What's the latest poll say? Ooh, we've gone down two-tenths of one percent. I need to be concerned about my policies. I need to change them to make sure I get that two percent back. I mean, isn't that what we live in? Whatever's popular, whatever people say, Whatever some talking head on TV or the radio says, what should we care what some actor says? I mean, all they have to do is learn some lines and be fake. I mean, what does it take to be a great actor? A great actor is a liar. A great actor is being somebody they're not. And, of course, the better an actor they are, the more people they've been, the better liar they've been. But all we have to hear is that, and you put, you put in the name, whatever name you like there, ex-celebrity says such and such. You know, oh, popularity, what people think. Luke chapter 16 tells us exactly what God has to think of that. Luke chapter 16, simple. A simple principle here, brethren. Grab a hold of it. Luke chapter 16 and verse 15. Interesting context, verse 14. And the Pharisees also who were covetous heard all these things and they derided him. Again, the Pharisees didn't like what Jesus said because they were covetous. And he was hitting them where where it hurt in their pocketbook. And he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. Here it is. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. Can somebody help me out? Does abomination mean that it's really good and cool in God's eyes? Does it mean that God is a little bit displeased with it. I mean, let's think in the Old Testament terms, okay? We go back to the Old Testament, it talks about some things being abomination. Can somebody tell me some of those things that God considered an abomination? Uh, Did I hear something about worshiping? Including like giving your kids in human sacrifice to that God? That's an abomination. Offering up your children in some fiery... Bronze beast like Moloch. That's an abomination to God. Oh, yeah. Does, I mean, does that, do you see what he means here by abomination? Amen. It's something God hates intensely. Amen. It's popular with the world. God hates it. Good equation to make. The more the world loves it, 
the more God hates it. What's highly esteemed among men, see, highly esteemed, it's not just esteemed, it's highly esteemed, is at the top of men's list, it's at the bottom of God's list. Principle to learn. Over in Psalm 49, Psalm 49 talks about men and how they'll how they do things, how they love to talk about themselves. They like to name lands after themselves. They like to have their foundations. You know, today they have. And it says that men, you know, when you do well by yourself, men will praise you. The rich men of this world are often praised. The very ones that people then grumble about because they have stolen from them. And over in Isaiah chapter 8, it talks about associations and confederacies that being contrary to God's word, they'll be broken. They'll be destroyed. So popularity in numbers, God hates it. You know, it's not scripture, but just something to think about. I've heard that if you take any group of people, the more you add to it, Take whatever the average intelligence of the people there, divide it by the number, and that's the intelligence of that group. And it's true. The more you put people together, those of us in here, you know, if I was a very persuasive speaker, I might be able to get you to, you know, halfway believe something stupid every once in a while. But you get a stadium filled with 100, 200, 300, 400,000 people. It's very easy to manipulate a crowd like that. God made us social creatures. God made us so that by nature we usually don't like to go against too much what everybody else does. And when there's a whole bunch of us here, it's very easy to sway us. It's very easy to sway a large multitude. Think about a a, a German failed artist, paper hanger, who led an entire nation into their destruction few years back by the name of Adolf Hitler. Go back, that was his technique to get these large mass meetings. Public opinion is worthless. Results. Circumstances and results. I've got a a section we'll look at very briefly that talks to that. Finally, man's feelings. My thoughts. My experience. Man's heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17.9. Man drinks up sin like water. It tells us in Job 15. David, the man after God's own heart. One of the most glorious men in the Old Testament had to acknowledge that he was conceived in iniquity. And it wasn't that his mother, it wasn't an adulterous act. It's just that when he was born, he was full of sin. And that's the heart you want to trust. That's what you want to look to. Your own heart. Precious. So wonderful. What did God see when God looked down? What was, what's the decision of God over in, I believe it's Psalm 14 and Psalm 53? And over in Romans 3, it's quoted again by Paul. What was God's estimation when he looked down through the quarters of history at mankind? Nobody was seeking him. Nobody was looking for him. They are all going the wrong way and seeking every foolish sin they could find. That's our hearts, brethren. There's a way what seems right unto a man. It tells us twice in the book of Proverbs. In the end thereof are the ways of death. Only fools trust in their own heart. Proverbs 28, verse 26. Okay, we've covered choices that men in this world want us to make. The basis on which they want us to do it. Let's move on now to look at some examples from Scripture. Brother Stephen read to us one. Eve chose to have a conversation with the serpent. We don't need to turn there. You heard it read. You know it well enough. Think about it. How did it start off? From the out of the gate, the serpent was questioning God's word. Now, brethren, every word of God is pure. Proverbs 13, verse 5. She should have said, devil, shut up. 
But she didn't. We're to esteem all of God's precepts as right and hate every false way. Psalm 119, 128. But she wanted to be polite. I mean, it, 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 would, it wouldn't be, you know, kosher. I mean, Emily Post wouldn't like us to just right out of the gate to start knocking somebody down, right? So she was sociable, you know, as she discusses this with the devil. Well, what did the devil do with that? Was he just equally sociable back, or did he take the initiative? I mean, here Eve kind of gave him some ground, you know. Well, you know, the devil said, you know, yea, hath God said you can't eat of every tree, putting a bad association on God. Oh, well, no. God said that we can eat of all the trees except for one, but, you know, that one, you know, he doesn't want us to eat of or or touch it because we may die. And the devil just leaped right on that. The devil just turned that right around with a confident lie. Ye shall not surely die. God knows that in the day you eat thereof, you're going to become like him. You're going to know good and evil. And the devil's confidence, the devil's blind confidence, helped persuade her to enter into sin. Brethren, the Bible tells us evil communications corrupt good manners. Evil communications will corrupt good manners. One little choice to enter into a conversation can have devastating results. How about over in Genesis 13, we heard Brother Rollin read about Lot. Now think about it. Lot's a wealthy man. He's benefited from being under Abraham, right? He's got herds. He's got flocks. He's got tents of his own. He's got responsibilities he's got to take care of. He looked, and there's that well-watered plain over there near Sodom and Gomorrah. Take care of my family. Right? I mean, looking for how I can take care of all that I've been given. And you know what? Since I'm there... It's going to help out if I become a man of prominence, right? Because later on, where do we see him? He's sitting in the gate. He's listed by the men of Sodom as one who would seek to be a judge in their midst. He's a man of prominence. Isn't that the way you take care of yourself? Make sure you're in a good place economically. Make sure you've got influence to make sure that things are going your way. Where did he end up? He ends up coming to his sons-in-law. And they laugh at him. You want us to leave here? You, the community pillar, want us to leave this place? Oh, now you've got some scruples and you think things are so bad here? (laughs) Yeah, it's a joke, right, Dad? His wife turns around and becomes a pillar of salt. And then his two daughters. What kind of upbringing and background did they have? That what entered their mind is less, you know, we're here in the wilderness. Nobody's going to want to come near us, especially if they know where we came from. Tell you what, we need to make sure the dad's name's perpetuated. That's a good thing, isn't it? Sure. So let's get him drunk. I'll lay with him tonight. You lay with him tomorrow night, and we'll have children by him. Sick. That was because Lot made a choice. Well-watered plain. Right there in front of Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, brethren. Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20. Remember? You turn there, I'll tell you about it. This is towards the end. This is towards the end of the nation before they're supposed to go back into the land. They're out there griping and complaining because there's no water to drink. They've done this before. Moses has had to put up with it for years, right? He goes, to the, goes he and Aaron go before the Lord, and the Lord says, yeah, I, I hear Moses. Tell you what, take your rod, go forth, speak to the rock, and I'll bring water out for him. Moses, though, is still in a tip. I mean, he's still just, he's still so frustrated about this. What does he do? 
he goes out there before the people. He takes the rod of God. And remember, once before, God told him, take the rod and smite the rock and water will come out. He did it and everything was fine. Okay? So this time he takes the rod. He goes out there. Must we get water out of this rock for you rebels? Wham, wham. Water comes gushing out. Oh, he got results. Right? Woo. I mean, he lost the weight, right? The wonderful weight loss medicine, you know? You're going to live for another 300 years because you take it. Oh, our scientists have gotten, have studied, and look at the results of our tests. Moses got results. And what did God say? Moses, you didn't sanctify me before the people. You're not going in. And what's pitiful, brethren? Go to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 3. The entire book of Deuteronomy is literally minutes, hours, days before they're walking into the land. And Moses is going back over all the law. He's reviewing everything with them, everything God's done, giving the last charge to, to Joshua so he can go up in the hill, look at the land, and die there. Brethren, that's, to me, that's one of the most pitiful books of the Bible from that standpoint. It's a glorious book of God's revelation. But Moses, who the Bible says was faithful in all his house, Moses couldn't go in. And in that third chapter, Moses talking to the people said, you know, he tells them, he recounts that this very event at Marah. And then he says, you know what? I begged the Lord. I asked the Lord, please let me just walk in the land. And God said, Moses, shut up. I don't want to hear you talk about it anymore. You give Joshua charge. You go up in the mountain. You look at it. And you're going to die there. One little choice. One little deviation. It got results. But the results were bad for Moses. He couldn't go into the land. Oh, but turn over, think about Joshua now for a second. We've looked at some bad ones. Let's think about a good one for a second before we move on. That same Moses, he was an old man when he started his charge. He was 80 years old when he started, right? He had a young man called Joshua that was there with him to help out. You know, it talks about over in Exodus 33 one time where Moses was going, would go into the tabernacle and he would see God face to face. He'd get revelation directly from God. Then he'd come out and tell the people what God had said. It says, there was a young man, Joshua. He stayed in the tabernacle. Here was a man who was the servant of Moses, who spent time with the Lord, who served him faithfully. You know, a time came when they had to choose 12 of the princes of Israel to go in and check out the land. Joshua was one of those princes. And of all those 12 mighty men who went in to search out the land, only two came back and said, you know what? Yeah, there's giants in there, but there'll be meat for us. God's going to give us this land. God took us out of Egypt. He brought us here. He's going to give us this land surely. Don't rebel against him. Go in and take it. That was Caleb and Joshua. He was a faithful man. Every step of his life, he made a choice. I'm going to follow the Lord. I'm going to do what God says. I'm going to believe in the Lord. And in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 38, the Lord tells Moses, great Moses, charge Joshua, prepare him. He's going to take the people into the land. Wow. And he's the one, as an old man, who gave that challenge. By the time he was ready to pass on, everybody looked at Joshua just like they used to look at Moses. He had the same authority and the same might in their eyes. And he ended up in the land with his property, giving a charge to the people. All because he made a choice. It was always the same choice to serve the Lord. But then over in 1 Samuel 15, Another one. 
a different one. We have Saul. Saul, remember Saul? I mean, this is this this should not be new. We don't need to. You can go ahead and turn your Bibles there. But think about Saul, the first king of Israel, head and shoulders above anyone else in the land as far as height. A very humble man to start with. Very humble man to start with. And what happened? About a year into his reign, the Lord said, I remember the Amalekites, what they did to my people. They attacked them when they were coming into the land. I want them wiped out. I want you to go in and wipe out every man, woman, and child. I want the the animals slaughtered as well. Don't bring anything home. Saul says, all that came through Samuel the prophet. Saul said, Samuel, consider it done. He went out. He got the armies together. He told one people who had been with them, who was near those cities, to get out of there, to spare their lives. And then he went in with the armies and he destroyed everything except he kept the king of the Amalekites alive, Agag. He spared him. And the people said, hey, there's a whole lot of good animals here. You know, this would be pretty good to offer the Lord in sacrifice. Now, whether he actually said that or not, I, I don't know. But I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to give him what he says. The people go in there and say, hey, look at that great. Wouldn't it be wonderful offering that up in the tabernacle to the Lord? Saul said, sounds like a winner to me. Bring it along. Slaughter everything else, but bring that good stuff with us. Again, I love the, the scripture. Later on, when Samuel, after God's talked to Samuel and said, Samuel, I've repented that I made Saul king. I'm going to find somebody else. So Samuel goes to bring the message to Saul. And he says, Saul greets him saying, Blessed be thou the Lord. I've done what God told me to do. Samuel says, What meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep that I hear? Oh, that's all the stuff I brought back to sacrifice to the Lord. Hath the Lord as great desire in sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Small altercation. Small, I mean, alteration. How did God consider that in verse 23 of chapter 15 of 1 Samuel? Witchcraft. Idolatry. You know, Saul, you could have just as well gone out there and cast a spell. You could just as well have set up a totem pole and started worshiping it. It's what you did. Because I want obedience. I don't care what you do in your worship. I don't care what you think, what your motives are. I want obedience. And he lost the kingdom over it. More than that, if you go over to 1 Samuel 31, verses 2 through 6, you know, one of the greatest men who's lived in the nation of Israel was his son, Jonathan. But he, along with the other sons of Saul, died in battle. And Saul died a suicide. He made a choice. He made a choice. I'm going to just make a slight alteration in what God said to do. It cost him. It cost him the throne. It cost him his son's life. It cost him his own life. Ah, but let's go to the New Testament and look at a good one. Our brother Paul... Paul Crosby read about our brother Paul, the apostle, in Philippians chapter 3. Again, Paul had a glorious background from a Jewish standpoint. Well-educated man, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And he counted it all but dumb that he could win Jesus Christ. Look at this. Circumcised at the eighth day of the stock of Israel. Verse 5. A tribe of Benjamin. Hebrew of the Hebrews. Is touching the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal. Persecuting the church. Touching the righteousness which is in the law. Blameless. But what things were gained to me. Those I counted loss for Christ. Yea doubtless and I count all things but loss. For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And do count them but dung that I may win Christ. His impeccable credentials as a Jew. 
he could care less about. But he was very willing to sacrifice everything to be the disciple of Jesus Christ. Interesting, you go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 33. And there he claims all his sufferings as his ministerial credentials. Proudly proclaims the sufferings he took for Jesus Christ's sake. That's a choice. That's a choice to make. But finally, brethren, most beautiful picture of a choice is over in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12. Part of the lesson for us, the first verse. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. The Lord knew what he was facing. And he went joyfully for it. By faith he knew that he would bring many sons to glory. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. That's you and me. Isaiah 53. He knew that his sufferings would justify many. And with that prospect in front of him, with that joy of seeing us in eternity with him as his children, As his brothers and sisters, he endured the cross. He despised the shame. He made a choice for us. Lord, what can we choose for him? What should be the basis for our choices, brethren? Faith, Hebrews 11.1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Verse 3. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which were seen were not made of things which do appear. Verse 6. Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Brethren, We need to have faith. That should be the first thing. Faith in God to guide our choices. Faith is strong confidence in the existence of God, His precepts, and His promises. Notice it was that great promise set before the Lord Jesus Christ by which He endured the shame. He endured the cross and despised the shame. Faith believes God so much that those unseen promises, unseen to our carnal eyes are counted as present realities. It's here right now, and I'm experiencing them. Hebrews chapter 12, where it talks about, excuse me, 11, the household of faith here. Notice, Noah built an ark. God said he's going to flood the world. He didn't know what a flood was. It's going to rain, Noah. He didn't know what rain was. But he believed God. So he built that ark and was ready. Abraham. Abraham. God said, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a city. Abraham never saw it. But he consistently moved and did his what he did in this world with the faith. God's got a land waiting for me. God's got a city for me, and it's better than this stuff I see around me. Sarah. Sarah was an old woman, well past time of bearing. She received strength to be able to bear a child because she believed God. And brethren, if that one isn't comforting to you at times, 
because we should all be able to go back and look at an instance when she laughed and said, can God do this? Even small faith that wavers occasionally, God can still turn into great things. Faith trusts totally and completely in God's word and rejects anything that's contrary to it. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. That's your attitude. Faith looks to God with confidence and expectation that he will reward obedience. See? What's it say here? That he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That's faith. Two. God's word has to be the guide to our choices. God's word, it tells us in the Psalm, in Psalm 119, 105, in Proverbs verse 6, chapter 6, verse 23, God's word is a lamp unto our feet. It guides our choices. Scripture contains the certain words of truth. Think about that. It's not just truth. It's the certain words of truth. Proverbs 22. God's word in, in our life, God's word is our life. Deuteronomy chapter 32. And it's the only source of peace in this world. And anything contrary to God's word, it's darkness. To the law and to the testimony, Isaiah thundered. If they speak not according to this word, it's because there is no light in them. And finally, my third point in conclusion, we've got to have faith. We've got to base things on God's word. But we've got to be doers. It's not enough for us to sit here and listen. It's not enough for you to pick up your Bible and read it and say, oh, that's wonderful. Oh, that's wise. Oh, that's good. Got to be a doer. James. James chapter 1. Verse 23. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in the glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. It's like looking in the mirror in the morning, you know, you, you look at yourself, you know, you check things out, but then you go away and you forget it. That's what we're like if we don't do it. But whoso looketh, verse 25, into the perfect law of liberty and continueth, continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Those promises, brethren, will only become realities in your life when you do God's word. Those promises are wonderful promises for the world to come and for the world right now. But they will only, you will only experience the blessing of those promises when you do what God tells you to do. When you're obedient to what he says. And notice here that first two verses we talked about being a forgetful hearer. Remember, remember that parable that Jesus gave about the sower you know that those who aren't careful the devil comes and snatches it up the devil's out there brethren he's in here trying to snatch things away from us if we're not diligent in what we're doing he's given this whole world with all sorts of distractions entertainments, worries fears, all sorts of things to take your eyes off of the Lord so if you're not diligent in studying God's word and applying it daily to your life, you'll forget it. John 8 tells us that those that continue in Christ's word show true disciples, discipleship. Then said Jesus to those Jews that believed in his word. You know, how's that go? If you continue in my word, you're my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth. And the truth shall set you free. But notice that freedom is only for those that continue in the word. 
Blessing only comes from keeping God's ways. And see, brethren, unadulterated, this book, not the tradition that's based on this book, not the second thoughts of someone that are based on this book, this book alone. That's one of the big differences in our congregation, brethren, in any true church of Jesus Christ. Yes, God has given us gifts to stand up here and to teach this word to us, but it's your job, it's my job to take it home and to learn it ourselves, to prove out what's said here. As I said, my outline will be on the church web this week that you can look at. If I've said something wrong, throw it out the window. Come show me where I'm wrong. I want to be right. But you yourself, throw anything outside the window that's not according to this book. And then make sure that you're doing it yourself. That's how you're going to be blessed. Just like in the parable that Jesus Christ said, that firm foundation, that rock, is for those who hear his words and do them. Unlike that sand. Don't build your life on sand. Don't listen to what Jesus Christ says and not do it. Make sure you get a rock that will stand all the turmoils of this life. We should be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For by faith we know that our labors will not be in vain. May God help us that we might make good choices this day and every day of our life. 